The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Pleathered on the Big Light Network. My guest is Stephen McGee. Stephen is the CEO of financial services group Scottish Friendly, an organisation that has community involvement and charity at its forefront. Stephen recently participated in a gruelling three-day trek in the Arctic Circle with 15 other volunteers to raise valuable funds for the Celtic Foundation charity. Stephen tells me in great detail about the challenge, with the team facing temperatures of minus 25 degrees while walking 30 kilometres in one day and pulling their equipment. You'll hear about Stephen becoming separated from the group and panic starting to set in. And we talk about the importance of looking out for those who need it, whether it's big or small. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it. It's a great help. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash bleathered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt senior debt advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Right, being a, being a CEO is a very important position. You aren't always a CEO. That was at St Bride's in East Kilbride. Is that the school you went to? East Kilbride, yeah. What was how? What was East Kilbride like growing up back then? What age are you? Forty-nine. Right. Okay. You, you don't look it. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's all that. Exercise. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that was a compliment. <laughs> ah, yeah. No, you don't look older, Matt. No, I thought you were about seventy. <laughs> it's all that exercise in the Arctic. I mean, what what did you see for yourself back then? Because Becoming a CEO, I don't know any CEOs, or maybe I know one or two, I think, but it's not a very common job title that you, you encounter, is it? No, I didn't see myself as a CEO back then. Probably quite sadly, though, when I was about 12, I did see myself being an actuary. What, right, okay, I, what is an actuary? <laughs> what is a financial mute? Well, all these questions, but tell what is an actuary? Right, it's very, that's a very difficult question to actually answer. Right. It's probably one... I have dreaded being asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's that bad that I was on uh, in 1998, I was actually on a working party to set the f- future, the vision for the actuarial profession in Scotland. And what they came out with was we were all given a wee card, right? Because that's what we all we all hated that question. Whenever we went to parties or social events, we all hated the what is an actuary question. And on the wee card, this was the answer to that question, right? And it was sent to every single actuary, every single actuarial trainee in the whole of Scotland. And the back of that card said, We make financial sense of the future. So just we like to be deliberately vague. And it's like what the hell? 
was like, how does that help? But, but they actually thought that would help. They Aye. thought that would help. The best way I can describe an actuary is, is, is like an accountant. A right. bit like an accountant, but working in insurance businesses. So we decide lots of different things, but the easiest way that people would understand is when you take out a life insurance contract, mm -hmm. it's typically actuaries that work out what you need to pay right, okay. for that insurance contract. So we're, we're looking at how long we expect you to live, what sort of life events might pay out, and then how much you need to pay up front. It's kind of like a human algorithm. In the sense of you're, you're looking at different variables and saying, well, this is the this is the final amount. By the way, to the person listening, it's not going to be this boring the whole <laughs> way through. <laughs> but just this is my own personal intrigue. Well, you're saying that, Sean. I can't obviously guarantee <laughs> I, I I'm glad you're confident. <laughs> um, so uh, just for a wee quick overview of you in terms of your career, you went to Glasgow Uni. I mean, you've worked for, is it Lloyd's? So worked for Abbey National in St Vincent Street in Glasgow, worked right, for okay. Britannia Life, which not many people know about, which was in Bovell Street in Glasgow. Abbey National was taken over by Santander, so I worked for them for a bit. Santander then sold their life businesses to a company called Resolution, who nobody will have heard of. Uh, Resolution were then taken over by a company called Peril Assurance, which hopefully quite a lot of people I've heard of that. Will have heard of. Scottish people can't say Peril. We don't roll our R's well enough. <laughs> uh, and then they then actually rebranded to Phoenix. And most people might have heard of Phoenix. So Phoenix are one of the biggest life consolidators in the UK and have recently taken over Standard Life. So that's where people might have heard them. Left them. Right. Went to Aegon. Was there a very, very short period of time before going to Lloyd's uh, Bank, which I'm hoping all your listeners have heard of. Yes. And then back to Aegon, and now it's Scottish Friendly. So been about a bit. You were a non-executive director at Scottish Friendly to begin with, and then you became CEO, was it September last year? So it's, Or is it September the year before? So uh, about two years ago, I started the process to become a non-executive director. Mm -hmm. That was approved by the regulator September 2021, and then I took over as CEO April last year. How do, how do you end up, because a CEO seems to me, I always think of like an old guy, 60-odd, you know, like quite fat, a wee bit bald, <laughs> you're none of these things, and it's like, how do you, do people come to you and say, we want you to come and run this company, we think you've you've shown the aptitude or the the required skill set and your current role and we think you can make the step up or do you apply for it? Like, how does that work? So you apply. Right, okay. It's like any, it's like any other job. But typically, jobs at that level are not publicised. Hmm. So find so out about it in the sauna or something? <laughs> so it's usually headhunters. Right, okay. you? So, like, uh, different types of big headhunters will go out and they're... It's headhunting. It's not a great phrase, but what it means is basically it's a private search that you're paying somebody to lead on your behalf. Yeah. They reach out to potential candidates and ask them if they're interested. Actually, the first thing they ask you is, do you know anybody else that might be interested? Because they don't like to try and poach and dislodge you, and they're hoping quite often that you say, do you know what? I, I, I quite fancy a guy like that. <laughs> it's like if somebody phoned me and was like, by the way, we're looking for... Somebody who's brilliant, dynamic, who can do this job. Do you know anybody? I'd be like, uh, who are you talking to? Like, you're talking to one. And that that's, maybe know those exact phrases, but that's what they're doing. So they're typically just trying, S reaching out. out. Reaching out, and they're trying to test your interest as well. Um, 
I had a wee look at sort of some of the charity stuff that you've been involved in, right? Load of questions. So you're a coach for East Kilbride Boys. Is it what's what does the RR stand for? God, I'm not. So it's East Kilbride RR, right? Uh, which used to be East Kilbride Rolls Royce, which was the big factory right, in East okay. Kilbride. Didn't realise it. So Rolls Royce is a factory in East Kilbride for decades in the 1950s. Oh, right. So it's the one that's moved to Shannon now? Aye. Right, okay. So in the 1950s, the social club within Rolls Royce actually set up an amateur football club. Right, okay. Which was East Kilbride Rolls Royce Football Club. We are the youth uh, part of that football club, but we're no longer allowed to use Rolls Royce <sighs> because they've moved to Shannon. And I think, to be honest with you, somebody had it on the project plan to, as part of Exit and East Cabride, that they had to actually stop the football club using. Oh, that's a wee bit harsh, isn't it? So we were EKRR. Aye. Uh, but you, so you're involved in that. Is it the preschool, the younger kids? Are they like setting up the teams and the new players coming in that you're involved in? So that's what I do now. I used to run the 2009 team and I ran them basically from preschool all the way up to just before COVID. So what, what inspires you to do that? Because you obviously must be really busy. Have you got kids of your own that you have in, or is it just something you really want to do? So my son was going to, so my son, preschool, was going to a football club. That football club used to meet on a Tuesday night, mm. okay? They moved to a Saturday morning. I was like, oh, this is great, because I, I used to play f amateur football, love football, one of big passions. And I thought, right, I'll come along, I'll see how he's getting on. And the guy, there was a guy, Alan Ross, an absolute legend, and he's got bright football circles came up to me and said, do you fancy helping out? And at this point, they're four, right? So it was literally holding hands <laughs> and just encouraged them to move forward in a line and do yeah. what you want to do and guiding them through cones. So, so my exact words to him were, I would love to help out, quite interested in doing football coaching and badges and supporting. I was like, but the only thing is I've got a really busy job, so I can only do Saturday mornings. I can't do anything midweek. Roll forward six weeks, we're at the club's annual football festival, right? And he says to me, will you be able to help out? And I was like, yeah, 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 that's fine. Turns up, he's like, listen, I'm busy. Here's 30 kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I was like, right, okay. And then two weeks after that, he said, listen, can you run the team uh, as we join the league next year? Because basically his role at that point in time was to set up the new teams. Right. Every year, He's Jedi really, mind tricked you there, and really find uh, volunteers to actually do that to take those teams forward. Because look, all of these football clubs, and there's loads of them across the country, mm. it's just volunteers. And whilst we've got a structure in place to help and support the new team, mm -hmm. you're actually every year you're looking for a group of parents that are actually going to take that team forward for the next four, five, and up to ten years. It it takes a lot of time, that type of thing. And it's is it do, I mean, do you feel as if you're getting it's such a cliche, cringy phrase in it, but do you feel as if you're getting something back for doing that? Because it might seem on the surface just a wee thing, but it obviously means a lot to the kids. So I ended up running the two thousand and nine team and my son was in the team. And that was fantastic. But Actually, there was a downside to that, and I've, I've seen it in quite a lot of coaches. Typically, coaches are a coach to the rest of the kids and a dad to their own kid. Aye. And you definitely have that, and there's great YouTube videos about the drive home from games, and it's the coach with the son, right, typically. We had quite a few girls in our team, but it was the videos are coach with the son. And it's a, why did you 
conversation. I was like, why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? And just the whole way home from that game of football was just, why did you? So there is the downside of that. Mm. But see the benefit of actually just seeing kids and it's amazing how these kids go from basically just toddlers that you're just happy they're going in the right direction mm. and they're not stargazing all the time to, you know, five, they're beginning to become wee individuals. This is five asides. They go to sevens, they become proper footballers. It's sevens. So that's, so that's what about nine years old. They've yeah. already become actual footballers and seeing that progression. I love, that's probably one of the parts of both my role in the office and also outside with the kids football. I love that coaching element. I love that helping, supporting, encouragement. Just need You just need to watch you don't have the downside of the... Aye. Well, I think like, because I, I started playing football about seven, eight, and it was something I did right up to 18, 19, 20. And it was the most fundamental pillar of of my life in terms of good role models, um, structure, discipline, training, fitness, and things that stayed with me forever. And as I got older, I realised like the, or it, it then started to become a lot more clear the the importance of the people who actually provided that because you kind of took it for granted. Like, oh, here's this system, here's this structure, I'm coming into it. But really, it was guys that were coming in for their work and that were offering you all sorts of other life advice and it made you streetwise like we were fucking wide as a Clyde because we're all coming <laughs> for all different bits and you make pals for different areas and I've made some mental lunatic pals who are pals to this day I made really good friends and people feel all over and you, it, it develops a, a good sense of you um, and I think I so you you doing that probably even to you you're getting your own wee bit of self-satisfaction but there'll be kids years down the line and they'll probably be employees years down the line who'll, who'll remember things that you've done and you, it's it's a a positive impact that can't be understated um action for children are you involved with action for children so we are as a company right we are we've basically we've been involved in them for a few years i think one of one of my big passions one of the passions of scottish friendly is actually trying to be there for lots, for everybody, trying to actually help and support. And there's there's this phrase about we're all in the same boat, right? We're not all in the same ah, boat. It's the same as we've all got the same 24 hours. We definitely don't, and right. we're definitely not. We might have, we might be in the same storm, Aye. but we're all in different boats, right? And what we're trying to do, whether it be with the kids' football, whether it be uh, with Action for Children Scotland or the other, the other organisation we're supporting, is trying to actually get a better boat for as many of those yeah. many of those children as possible, giving them the same advantages as other people have, or mm. at least leveling that playing field so that they're not being disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And the really worrying thing at this moment in time is it's actually getting worse, no better. I know. It, well, it kind of comes, it makes me think of the whole equality and equity thing. You can give people a quality of opportunities, but they might not have the same circumstances. So, well, you could say, here's the same opportunity for you both. Somebody could be stuck in quicksand, or they're already fucking 10 miles behind. Um, and it, it, it absolutely is getting worse. In terms of from the charitable and sort of philanthropic perspective, is that you coming into the company and it's Scottish friendly and, and saying, here's what we're going to do? Or is it? the company are already doing it and you're agreeing with it and you're both in alignment, like how is that shaping up? It's, it's probably the latter, to be honest with you. What 
have done with the, some of the team is let's be clear why we're aligned to some of these organisations. Mm. So we're, we're now aligned formally over a number of years, so that gives the charities certainty around the earned money will be there. Oh, so you, you say like for X amount of so years? So for three years, we've aligned with three different organisations right, okay. and we've got a commitment, it gives them the certainty. So one of the things we've done with Action for or Action for Children Scotland have been able to do because of us giving them their, that certainty, mm-hmm. they've gone out and hired uh, someone who's going to go into schools and help with mental well-being within the schools, right? And that's only because we've committed to actually giving them the money year on year they've been mm. able to do that. We're hoping that's going to be a massive success and we can then, therefore, do more. Build on it. So I think, you know, I've been involved with a, a few organisations. One of the things I did a long time ago was a thing called Pilot Light and it was supporting a charity, right? And the thing the chief executive of that charity said to me was, and it was in March, right? They were doing the budget funding round for April. And towards the end of March, they did, still did not know how much money they would have at the start of April. Uh, impossible to plan. And it's like, how do you actually, how do you plan? So they were going on the basis that they would have it. Mm-hmm. If they didn't have it, they would have to close facilities and stuff like that. So giving the charities a bit of confidence and certainty that we'll be there, mm. it's very much aligned to stuff I'm passionate about, but it's very aligned to what Scottish Friendly is passionate about uh, and just trying to actually help and support and just, Aye. yeah, level that playing field. <clears throat> I was actually on in my absence on Sunday. I was auctioned off for Action <laughs> uh, for, for Children. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It was There was a, a lunch, Women's of Influence lunch. Women's? No, Women of Influence lunch. And uh, it was a podcast session with me that was getting auctioned off. Now, it raised quite a wee bit of money, right? I was quite surprised with how much it raised. And it was, I, I've, I've been told there was people bidding and stuff. But I also beat a day out. I think it was a day out at Ibrox, a match day <laughs> thing. So you can draw whatever conclusions for that that you will. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying I was worth more than that, but um, the people have spoken. Depends what match it was, I suppose. Ah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Let's go. So the the trek. Let's talk about the trek. The the main thing that we're here to talk about. So this is the first ever Celtic Arctic adventure. Is it was billed due to be? You meant to do it January twenty one, and it was delayed. Did, did something happen in between? Was there something <laughs> going on? Or? Yeah. So I signed up for it in twenty nineteen. Fuck. So it was. Uh, we actually had uh, Zoom calls and all that sort of stuff preparing for it, and then something did happen. So. I, I remember the announced lockdown. You're like, thank God, man! I didn't fancy that. No, so I remember actually sitting, uh, sending a message to the people in the foundation who were organising it, saying, "This is not going ahead." Mm. You know, this is like the world is just locking down. There's no way in this world, and they they kept on because it's obviously as a big fundraising raising mm-hmm. target for them they're obviously desperate to get it going so yeah cancelled one year cancelled again so we've got it at a third time uh this so i'm having a real because i've got all my notes i'd like to give a mention to other people that did it as well because um and some interesting people in there but jane mcguire is she that does she run the celtic foundation this is for md listening this is for the celtic foundation um and the money basically goes to help vulnerable adults kids people through the, the sort of community 
So it's this woman, Jane, that's organising it. I've read as well that she's jumped out of planes. She's <laughs> abseiled off the main stand at Celtic Park. She's done zip slides. Has she got a death wish? Has she had adrenaline junkie? What is it? <laughs> she's uh, very determined, let's put it, it that seems way. It, so, so Tony Hamilton is the chief executive of the charity. Right, uh, Jane is the head of income, I think, is her official title. Right. But Jane is the sort of person that if she asks you to do something she'll do it herself right so it's very much a leader she is very much a leader they do an annual sleep out in uh, in a number of places jane does it every year she's done the abseiling and all that sort of stuff so she says she is every time she does something she always questions her sanity <laughs> uh, but she is a super super well she's a, just a brilliant person that i am totally proud of and she's super, super determined. So I'm, I'm going to, t- they might be listening, they might not, but I'm going to name everybody because once we get into the details of what you did, I read it and each time I was like, I really, I, I care about charity as well, but nah, I'm like, nah, I'll raise money in other ways. So we had uh, David Blackmore, Tom Boyd, former Celtic captain, no introduction required, Mark Cameron, Tracy Flynn, Roy Igo, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, Mark Lappin, Paul McFarlane, Jane McGuire, Stephen McGee, yourself, Kevin Malia, Ken Simpson, Riley Simpson, Kate Walker, Kenny Walker, Paul Walker, and Laura Williams, a foundation trustee. So well done to all of you. Bef- I mean, do you want to just talk me through it? <laughs> like, you had to fly to, was it Rovaniemi in Finland, also known as Lapland, is that right? So Lapland's a big area that covers quite right. far. Rovaniemi is most famous for Santa's Village. Right, okay. So if you ever go with your kids, which I have done, uh, you fly into Rovaniemi Airport and then you get you get transported into Lapland somewhere. Right, you so can that, spend the day in Santa's village. That poor bastard's working all year round. <laughs> Pretty much, is it? You can people. I was surprised at how many people were there. Uh, <laughs> apparently, I think somebody said in, uh, I think in, I think it's Japan. They believe if you're con- if you conceive in the Arctic Circle, uh, more likely to be a boy. So that is very popular in Asia, apparently all year round. Uh, so we flew into Rovaniemi. We flew in most of the day on the Wednesday from Edinburgh Airport. Got there, sorted for the hotels. It was interesting. So we walked in, we walked into the hotels. Until we got to the hotel, I didn't even know who I was sharing a room with. Oh, she's were bunking up with each other. Right, and so didn't know. I who didn't I... Like, Please give me tomboy. Please <laughs> give me tomboy. So I'd met. Of the 16 people, so me being one, the 15 others, Jane was the one person I knew really well. Obviously, I wasn't going to be sharing a room with Jane. Uh, the others, I think I'd met about five of them at one dinner. like mm. So sitting next <clears throat> to them at a dinner. And two, I'd went on a practice walk with, so I spent probably more time with them. But the rest I'd never met before in my life. So we're standing in reception, at the having travelled all day and not known... Uh, who we're going to be bunking up with. And I was myself and Mark Cameron. So Mark Cameron, who's also a trustee of the foundation, who I've met once before, right? Really nice guy. We go up to the room and we walk into the room and it's a twin room, but it's actually been set up as a double. Right? <laughs> uh, so one of the other one of the other pairs just said, I've never met you before. No, I'm going down. I'm going, we'll just have separate rooms, right? So <laughs> Myself and Mark just agreed. We'll put a wee bit of separation between the beds. So we just put six inches, just separated the two beds, put six inches forward. Jumping all the way to the end, we get back, having spent two days, two nights in a tent, right? We get back, it's the exact same setup, right? It's set up as a double bed. Well, ah, screw it, it's fine. 
<laughs> we'll just leave it as it is. We can have a wee cuddle later. <laughs> so we get there on the Wednesday night. That's all fine. We go out. We go out for dinner. Dinner was brilliant. And then a few people went out for a few drinks. So we watched the Celtic game. Some of us watched the Celtic game. Others went out for a few drinks. A few of them overdid it. They know who they are. I'm not saying who it is. But we all had to get together at nine o'clock the next morning for a safety briefing. Right? And so you're in the Arctic, right? You've had... We've had lots of kit briefings about what you need because there was a big long list about what we had to bring. And that we had a small safety briefing around cold weather injuries, and that's what they're most concerned about, like getting frostbite and how that can actually really badly impact you. Mm-hmm. We have a three-hour safety briefing. Okay. I'm not sure some of the people actually were taking much in. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love I love getting on it and stuff, but if I'm like I'm in the the literal Arctic, like I'm maybe just give it a miss for this one night. So they so they they were a wee bit rough. We managed to we went out for lunch, but we then had the afternoon the Thursday afternoon uh, to just do whatever we like. And five mm. of us uh, decided we go to Santa's village. Uh, the laugh was we've booked a taxi from the hotel. The only green and white taxi <laughs> in Rovaniemi actually turned up to take it. <laughs> well, how how do you even get there? Like, do you just fly direct to Glasgow? Or do you need to have like a connecting flight? So during end November, early December, there's a lot of chartered flights fly out straight from Glasgow to Rovaniemi. Right, okay. I've, I've done that. I did that with my child right, right. and my wife along a few years ago. We had to fly from Edinburgh to Helsinki, and then from Helsinki up to Rovaniemi. Right, and how, that's another question I've got, how does that even come about? Like, are you just at the game and somebody's like, here, mate, do you want to trek the Arctic? Or is there, like, did they put something out? Or were you involved in, like, a newsletter? Like, how, how did it come up? I, I think I just get tapped on the shoulder by Jane, to be honest with you. And they'd asked me to do Kilimanjaro before. Right, aye. Uh, it wasn't quite, the, it wasn't the foundation, it was... Uh, a group of Celtic supporters have been doing, uh, and I had said I would. I was very interested in doing it, but it ended up. Uh, I was in Russia in 2018 for the World Cup with two of my best pals, and we were talking about it, doing it. Did you go to games? Aye. What did you see? So we were at the game that Russia beat Spain on penalties. Right. That was pretty mad. Decent. That was pretty mad. Uh, I've been to quite a lot of World Cups and European Championships. Most of the games are boring, to be perfectly honest with you. See, see, as a football fan, really passionate about football, see if it's not a team you really care about. Teams are always quite tentative as well, aren't they? Uh, And especially World Cup, you can... The last few World Cups are getting better, a lot more attacking football. You Mm -hmm. can get a lot of dull games. I think Belgium definitely rank up there as uh, the dullest team we've seen. Uh, the most games we've seen that haven't had actually any excitement. We were at England, Portugal back. Remember when David Beckham slipped? Oh, aye. Uh, was it when um, what, what Euro two thousand four or Germany oh six? So Germany, uh, sorry, Portugal oh four. Oh four. Aye, he slipped and he, he skied his penalty over the bar, didn't he? So were there three of us in kilts with thirty five thousand English people? <laughs> there was actually more English people in that Portugal. Really, aye. A Portuguese stadium than uh, Portuguese, and we've got the kilts on. And by the end of the day, they were very drunk and not very happy. Flinging chairs at you, and uh, it was not a good experience. To oh, get up, then they get beat. <laughs> but aye, so we're in, we're in <clears throat> Russia, and I said, "Listen, I'm interested in doing that." And they said, "Right, we'll do it." So I had to go back to Celtic and say, "Listen, I'm going to do it." My two pals aren't that keen in, in raising money. 
for Celtic. One of them's a Rangers fan. One of them, although is a Celtic fan, just wasn't that keen in a Celtic foundation. Despite me telling them that it's not, you're not ranging, uh, it's not for buying players, right? It's for oh, helping. It? Ah, yeah, yeah, it's okay. for helping every day. And not, uh, they it's help. not going to signing on. Uh, fear it. Exactly. So, so we decided to do it ourselves. But because of that, Jane, I think Jane definitely had my number and she wrote to me not that long after saying, do you fancy doing this? And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know whether it's age, but like crisis or whatever, but I definitely want to do stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Is it like, do, is it kind of like testing yourself or leaving a sort of personal legacy? I think probably a combination. So raising the money, right? So raising a decent amount of Forget money. about charity, who cares? <laughs> like forget about that. Right, but actually... Being able to say you've that personal sense of Aye. achievement, so yeah, definitely pushing yourself, testing yourself, and also being able to just put, give something back. Mm-hmm. I think Kilimanjaro, I totally underestimated how physically demanding that would be. See, like if I picture Kilimanjaro, I've seen pictures, right, and it looks as if I'm like, I oh, just walking up a hill. It just looks as if it's an incline, but then other times I think. Everest and I'm imagining people with a pickaxe hanging like <laughs> climbing up actual rock. Like what what is Kilimanjaro like? So there there are different routes, but most routes are effectively a thousand meters over 10k. Right. So it's not actually not actually very it's steep. Constant incline though, eh? But you're just gradually going up. There is one bit in the Barranco Wall, right? Which is a straight it looks like a straight climb up the side of a cliff face. Uh, and that's a place where people have died right so you come in on your you come in on your i think for us it was the fourth night so you get in fourth night and i was exhausted right but we come into camp and you you go over the top of a hill you come down and you camp right below this cliff face and you've got all night to think about well this is about where people die Mm, ah, it's getting serious see be honest if you see when you're climbing up it it, there was only this one bit where you had to, they call it kissing the, the stone. You have to hug the rock as you shuffle across a six feet gap and you kiss, you can, you're that aye, close aye. to the rock face. It wasn't that bad. The people who tend to die was the porters who are just going, they're not going up the climbing route. They're just trying to get round people and all that sort of stuff. But hey, it wasn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel as if I was ever in danger going up it, but it was physically exhausting just because the, lack of oxygen as you get higher and higher and higher up. And our, our training consisted of Ben Lomond in August and the cobbler. Pair of trainers. The cobbler, the cobbler in, in December. That was it. We just Aye. thought 11k a day, we can do that dead easy. And uh, no, I totally underestimated Aye, it. People get the altitude sickness and lack of oxygen. Like what? what actually you just get up and there's just no oxygen. So you take it, nothing's getting through your system and you end up passing it. So you don't notice there's no oxygen, right? You don't, it's, it's, not, scary, it's, not, it? it's not as if you're wheezing and thinking, <gasps> aye, aye. I can't breathe. So there's still the same volume of air. It's just the oxygen percentage in the air. That's why like, when play, if Scotland go to play a friendly or something in places like, like Peru or Chile in some parts and they can't run the length of themselves, you know, there's no oxygen. So what, what I would say was... The guides were brilliant, right? Absolutely brilliant. Taking you very, very slowly. A poly poly, they call it. And it's literally the most born, slowest walk in the world, right? You're like, this is crazy. But see, at night, 
see if you go up to go to the toilet at night and you just walk at normal pace, you'd end up, you come back for a splitting headache. Oh, it's not, it's not. It's just that different. I think it's about 50% less oxygen by the time you get right to the top versus what you're used to. They say actually smokers do well because they're used to their lungs functioning <laughs> with not a lot of oxygen, right? And that heavy people, they say, actually do really well. We two really, really fit <coughs> people with us, they didn't make it. Like, these people were beating me back to camp by an hour and a half every day. They were so much fitter than us, but they didn't make it. Cause, and they reckon it was because they were so much, well, hey, they were going too fast, but also because they were so much fitter. Mm. That is mental. I hope these kids are, are uh, grateful for writing you at least a wee <laughs> thank you letter to say, by the way, cheers for nearly killing yourself. I really it, appreciate it. It, it wasn't, I did, as I said, I never felt as if I was in physical danger, but mm -hmm. definitely exhausted. I, di I didn't speak, I think from the Tuesday morning, I was having a conversation with one of my pals on the Tuesday morning that I finished in the Saturday. Because I didn't speak for five days. <laughs> I was that exhausted. Done in. If we go, going back to the exhaustion of the day one of the trek, so you're all set, you've had your security briefing and stuff, your safety briefing. What did they tell you? Did they say, um, don't do X, Y, and Z, or a bear could eat you? Like, what? <laughs> what is the safety aspect? Uh, people were worried about wildlife. We didn't, I think we've seen one reindeer and a few birds, right? <laughs> The polar polar bears are very, very aggressive, but they're 500 kilometres away, so right. so they shouldn't be an issue. And the rest of the wildlife, wolves is actually the, the probably the, the potentially dangerous, but they are afraid of humans, or they won't come near humans, so actually they stay well out your way. Really? They're scared? So they just stay, like, like most animals, if they know there's danger to them, they'll actually avoid. Aye, so aye. We, we didn't actually see much. The key thing they worried about was actually what they called overflow, which is slush, for want of a better phrase. Right, just aye. slush. So getting things wet, oh, aye, wet and cold, you're not dying that's the danger, most dangerous thing. <clears throat> uh, so your first, I've got here, in your first day, you were meant to walk 28 kilometres and ended up being 30. <laughs> due yeah. to conditions, did you have to go around that? See, like, if anybody's trying to get your head around walking 30k just in normal circumstances. Like, if I go for a wee walk up a hill, I'm like, oh, I'm done in, I'm shattered. So 30 kilometres, were you pulling, like, a sledge of stuff? So we carried everything, or, or all of our gear, we carried ourselves other than the tents, right? There was people set up the camp for us but sleeping bags water food etc we are pulling ourselves all our clothes with enough gear to allow us to get to minus 40 right so that was like i had four five layers of clothing for three days mm. right for it wasn't as cold as that but we, we we had all this gear with all these snacks and we're pulling it on a sled a pulk right on a harness so we've got a harness around our waist pulling this pulk behind us which was fine, provided there was no friction. Aye. Which, so if you're walking along quite a solid, compact ice or snow, it was dead easy, right? It just, it was just skating along behind you. The minute you get into heavy snow, it was really, really hard going. Well, do you know what it weighed? Could you get a rough idea? It was about 20-odd kilos. Right, again, like, imagine if somebody's, like, you're, say you're in the gym and somebody's like, right, tie this 20, tie this... Band on your waist, and we're, we're attaching twenty kilos. 
like after a couple of minutes, you're like, right, can we get this off now? I'm kind of, I'm done in. You haven't to pull that that length of time. So you start off, you're going, you went across a frozen river the first half. Yep. Second half of the day, you're going up lengthy inclines, deep snow, so that's causing a lot of friction, as you said. And then you're having to go through the dark while negotiating the overflow that you mentioned Aye. on a frozen lake. At this point, are you thinking, what <laughs> the fuck have I done? Why I think, have I done this? I think plenty of people were thinking that before then, I have to, <laughs> I have to say. And the, the bit at the start, the first 14 kilometres, definitely we were walking along a well-used uh, snowmobile, basically route, okay? So very compact, low friction, relatively flat. So mm. that definitely felt... If it, if it was as easy as this, we'd have been home by the second day, right? We wouldn't have, it wouldn't have taken us <clears> three days. That I think that did lull us into a false sense of security. The bit in the afternoon, up and through the forest, was tough. Uh, it was a wee bit of fun in places as well. The downhills, we could be... Because you get a shot in like a wee toboggan, a wee bobsleigh or no, something that was, like that. That was our own pulks. Or, or was it? <laughs> so the videos you've seen, I've taken a video of lefty Mark Cameron as he's going skiing past me on his own pulk. <laughs> <laughs> I did it on mine. I did it on mine. Ripped the mitt, one of my mitts oh, off. No. And I had to climb my way back up to get it. So I, I only did it once, but... So we, when we had a nice wee downhill bit, we were actually, a few of us were jumping on, so there's some good videos of us that all going downhill. Like I saw one of those videos. So that was, that was good fun. Then it got to the end of the night, and you know what, I think we've got about six kilometres to go I guess, in the dark. See, I see if we kind of make the point as well. People go, you hear the number six, that's six kilometres. That is really, really far. That is like going for, so we're at Pacific Key next to, for the BBC Science Centre. Is that not like making your way up to the Royal Infirmary? That's about 6k. I would say probably further than that. I think you're probably right. from here to probably Celtic Park. <laughs> nah, nah. Again, like, uh, nah. I just would be like, nah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm camping here. I'm setting my tent up here. Unfortunately, the tents are 6k, ah, away, so right, you've not okay. got the choice. That is really, 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 really far. And because the weather, the weather was a bit warmer than normal this year, so there was a lot of overflow. That's why the 28 became 32. Uh, 30, so you have to go around it? Because we had to basically find a safe route through. God's sake. But there was a point, and it was... Uh, I'm not proud of myself, but there was a point where there was... Every step was accompanied by an audible <laughs> expletive. Yes. Because it was basically just, fuck, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> as, if it's, as every footstep was... I would have made down. my way through every swear word I'd ever uh, heard in my life. And this, by this point, we're... At the end of a long, long day of walking, Aye. we've been pulling our own gear. We can see the fire in the distance where we're meant to be getting there. And for an hour and a half, that fire didn't appear to be getting any closer. And we're strung out, we're in single file, people are wet, our feet are wet, we're exhausted. Yeah, it was a great lifetime experience. Wait, you, when you get to your um, you get to your camp, it says like you're you're relieved, you get the chance to stay warm. So there's a fire set up, you set up your mats and sleeping bags. Does, can anybody even speak? Or are you just all like totally done in? Or are you sort of reinvigorated? Because you're like, right now we're actually getting a rest here. I, I think it, it really depended. Uh, individual by individual. So there's some people that actually were really physically fit and mm -hmm. were, were absolutely fine. Other people were physically exhausted and really were really begin to question why they were here. 
Okay, so you had that whole gamut for people that were actually fine, warm, and well-fed, all the way to... Everybody was warm and well-fed, but just even just taking off... Your stuff freezes, right? So there's moisture because you've been sweating or mm-hmm. your shoes are maybe get wet because of the overflow. The minute you stop, it all freezes. That's terrifying, So see, it? try to take your shoe, untie your shoelaces when they're frozen. Icicles between your feet and all that. Putting your gaiters on and all that sort of stuff and off. That is, so it, it was really, really the gamut from everyday people being absolutely fine and happy to really... Challenge physically and, and just worrying about the next day. What did, what did you eat? So the there was four people that basically were there supporting the trek. Okay. And did they walk or did they have a wee snowmobile? <laughs> so there was actually there was four Scottish people and two Finnish people. Right. right. The two Finnish people. One was the lead guide. He was on a snowmobile and he was basically tie, trailing. Uh, like what you say, like a plow on the back of the snowmobile to try and create a path for right. us to walk on to try and come back the snow a wee bit. And then there was a Finnish person that was leading the trek. Okay, so he was basically the lead guide. The, then there was two Scottish guides uh, who were be, who were basically getting the back, and they were helping and supporting the rest of us. There was two other Scottish people who were logistics, so they were going between camps and they were doing the food. And they they were setting up the campfire, right. setting up the uh, the tents, etc. The most mental thing about them is, a they do that for fun. <laughs> this is like fun for them, but also they sleep, and so depending on the temperature, what we did was we were on mats, and maybe in a base layer, or if it was colder, you were wearing more clothing inside a sleeping bag, inside a bivy bag, right inside a tent. They were all of that, but not inside a tent. They were in what, effectively a bus shelter. Right? Lunatics. What's so they are outside. The Finnish guys built an igloo. They actually built an igloo to go in because it was that cold the second night. They built their own igloo. And you're not allowed, because igloos are actually quite dangerous because if you don't build them properly, they can they, you can actually become suffocating, carbon uh Dioxide build up, etc. You have to be, they, they're not allowed to leave them built. You have to destroy them and rebuild <laughs> every time. So, this lead Finnish guide walked for all that time, got to the end, then spent three hours building an igloo. How do you even build an igloo? Do you just, just the snow? Just snow. You just dig it out. Why are these mental cases doing this for fun? Like, I wouldn't be trusting these people. I'd be like, you, like, if you do this for fun, you're obviously a psychopath. Are oh, you going to kill me in my sleep? <laughs> okay, if it was me, I'd be like, if the Celtic Foundation came to me and went, uh, can you help us? I'd go, aye, it'll be 15 grand. I'd press for charity. I'd be like, I don't care. Like, I said, you need to pay or else I'm not doing it. So they, they do, we do pay them, but to be honest with you, I think, see what we pay them, like, versus. Aye, they support what they're they, delivering, aye. They support they give. They're not doing it for the money. They're not doing it as a way to get an income. They're doing it because they are mental. <laughs> they like that sort of stuff, and yeah. we're effectively paying them to, to have do fun. stuff that they like doing. Aye. And so they do it. We were the first trek of this year. I think they they were there for six weeks. Right. 
So they were just doing it one, basically one weekend after another. Somewhere in Finland, there's a podcast going on with a tour guide, and he's like, "And can you, do you know what the the most mental thing? They actually paid us to do this. How <laughs> oh, they done it for free? <laughs> did, did you take did you take like sweets or anything like? Like how do you, are you able to keep your energy going? I'd been into tan like I don't know Haribo and all that to kind of give me a wee energy boost. So probably one of the things I learned from Kilimanjaro is actually what sweets to take. So I, I had energy bars and like wine gums right in Kilimanjaro see after two days I hated the energy bars uh, the taste of them it was like I couldn't eat them so I took what I was out I was in Marks and Spencers uh, and I bought uh, eight packets of mini gems right (laughs) put them all into a bag got some I got some chocolate and stuff like that put that into a bag the key is to cut it up and I'd actually tested I tested uh, putting stuff in the freezer to see what it would be like. Would it stick together? Mm. And what would it taste like? So I'd spent a week and a half testing various sweets out of the freezer and landed on mini gems being the best, the best thing. So every time you stop, again, probably learning from Kilimanjaro, water and food, every time you stop, right? Just keep yourself topped up because you're burning a lot of calories. So just keeping that top up. Uh, My... I had a, just a big, massive bag of mini gems, and we, we just shared. Like, people were sharing, and depending on what you what had, Freddos were great as well. A few people had oh, Freddos, they were, they were the business. They take out a bank loan to get them, though, the way the prices are shooting up. Um, day two, see when you wake up, are you just like, nah, I just want to keep sleeping, or are you ready to go? I feel as if I would have just been totally flat out. So we're lying in, we're lying in a, what was allegedly a three-man, three-person tent, and there's two of us. I don't know what size a person was meant to be three of in that tent because myself and Mark, we, we were literally an inch away from each other, right? I didn't sleep that well. Needed the toilet, right? But I've only I've only got a base layer on, right? For me to get ready to go to the toilet, which is about 50 yards away, I need to put all my clothes on, all my boots, everything, because it's cold. So I was like, I'll just hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. I feel like you could be forgiven for just pushing yourself for a heat. <laughs> <laughs> I had asked about should I run and bring up like a, a bottle, but he said no. Uh, so we're sitting, I'm lying there for a I felt like hours anyway. And Joe, one of the logistics uh, support, she says, you can see the northern lights, right? And the tents were so small, the two of you couldn't get ready at the same time. So myself and Mark are looking at each other. I was like, you go. He's like, all right. But it wasn't there that long. We missed it. So we. So I hadn't slept too well. The thing I was most worried about was actually needing the toilet in the middle mm. of nowhere because the camps were proper, not proper, but compost toilets, so that was all right. So you're like, right, okay. I've not slept. You know, what's the good day going to bring? Physically, I felt okay. I wasn't worried about the... The physical effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was more worried about that the first night, like before we started, because you didn't know. It was unknown. And you're like, well, it's 28k. What's it going to be like? I actually woke up the, the next morning knowing that it was actually going to be a shorter uh, walk. Just... And, and thinking, actually, this will be all right. And I was not, I was, couldn't have been any more wrong. Because you're saying you think it might be shorter, just the 22 kilometres a day Aye. carrying this mega weight and Aye. absolutely already shattered. So was it was it a tough day then? 
So we cli- we climbed up into the forest, which was in heavy snow, so that was pretty exhausting. And we, we get through, and it wasn't too bad. We then crossed a river. We stopped at a river, and the temperatures are plummeting, right? So mm-hmm. the first day, it was between minus 5 and minus 10. Second day, it was more like minus 15, going to minus 20, right? So we're crossing this river. We stopped. And I, I don't think everybody can really realise, because you're doing so much exercise, how warm you are whilst aye, you're moving. Right? So I've got big vents up the side of my smock. I've got mitts on, which I'm taking on and off to keep my temperature regulated. We stop on this lake just as the temperatures start to plunge. And we're like, right, we need to get moving because we're getting cold, okay? Cross the lake. That was The lake was fine. Gone to a road. The road was like a dream, right? It was like five kilometres on a road because it only a thin coating of snow, mm. hardly any friction. It was, you were, we were battered along this road, right? So we get... End of the road, we've got about five, four or five kilometres to go, and we think, right, this is this is us. We're nearly done. No. no. The last four kilometres were straight uphill in the dark. Uh, and at one point, I ended up... I, I, I couldn't keep up with the people at the front, and I was stuck in the middle myself. And I'm, so I'm walking in the pitch dark, don't know where I'm going, Hoping oh. I'm going in the right direction. And I think mentally, <clears throat> the physically it was tough because you were up, you were going uphill in relatively soft snow, pulling your gear, getting your feet going into the snow every 10 step or so. Physically getting exhausted, I had to, I had to have a massive refuel because I was like, I, was like, I don't think I can go. In. And then I'm stuck, right, for about 40 minutes myself, right, in the dark. Aye, freezing. And Temperatures plummeting, uh, plummeting, and I'm worried. I, I have to admit, see, after about half an hour, I've been mowing. And my safe, my safe place when I'm exhausted is I start counting, right? Maybe it's the fact. One league title, two league titles. <laughs> so just like, just, so I was like, right, I'll count to 500. I'll count to 500. I sort of worked out how long was to go. I was like, I'll count to 500. That'll be about the right amount of steps. So if I get to 500 and I'm not there yet, I'll start worrying. Aye. I got to 667. So you can imagine how worried I was at that point. And then the wee guy, the wee Finnish guy came round in the snowmobile and I generally could have kissed him. <laughs> I generally <laughs> right could have kissed him. And he's like, I said, how far is it to go? 200 metres. I don't know what the metric system is in Finland. But it's definitely not the same as the metric system <laughs> in the UK because that 200 metres was actually 600. Aye. But see the relief, the flood. I of bet relief. you'd have panicked. Oh, I was really beginning to get worried because you're just out in the middle of nowhere and I'm thinking to myself, if, if I just fall over here, I'm going to freeze. Aye. How are they going to find me? My phone had stopped working. Oh, fear. Uh, uh, so I was a bit worried at that point, but that Kilimanjaro was more demanding over the whole period, but that single walk up, that hill that night at the end of those two days was the most demanding physical thing I've ever done in my life. Not only that, because then it's the it's the mental demands that it's placing on you and the strain. Like, what do you, how do you how do you dig deep? Because I I would probably be quite huffy, and I would <laughs> sit down. I'm like, I'm sitting here until somebody comes for me, and that's it. I like pure belligerent child. I'm not moving. Do you think I don't know? Your aunt Betty does she pop into your mind, <laughs> or, or does that type of how like what what pushes you? I'll be quite honest. I can understand why people stop. 
I, I can literally... I would apply. I'm telling my wine gums till somebody comes back for me. I did it. I was so exhausted on Kilimanjaro on the way down, I stopped and I just wanted to sleep. So I know how that feels. Right. I actually fell asleep on the way down Kilimanjaro and it was a guide that said, no, you need to get down off this mountain as quick as possible. Like he's so, a cool carry then. But I was ready to just lie down and curl up in a wee ball. So I know how that feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was determined on going to the Arctic that I would not be in that position. So I, physically, I was actually in pretty good shape. But mentally, you have to just, like like I said, when I'm struggling, I go to counting. That is my safe zone. That's when the actuary in <laughs> you coming out, isn't it? That's the actuary in me. So, like, the last 2K of a 10K, just start counting. Just, just take your mind off it and just concentrate and just that one, two, three, four, and just try just get yourself the next step, one more step, one more step, and just get through it. It's pretty low-hanging fruit, though, for me to make this observation, though, isn't it? But it's does transfer to life in terms of if you're going through the worst possible time you don't need to don't need to worry on the distance of where you want to get to how far away it is it's like just take a step just take a step just take a step did you find then that that experience did it transfer to life and work and challenges do you think if it comes your way you're like well I fucking walk through the arctic mate <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can i can do anything i think i think challenging yourself does give you that confidence so i think you're you're probably spot on i've always been the sort of person that only worries about the stuff i can control and influence i don't think about why am i here how did i get here because that to me yeah that's just all wasted so it's all it's very much about how can we actually push through from here what small things can we do to make it better i definitely i definitely try and take that into the office as well mm. <laughs> who cares why we're here you know don't spend energy looking back the way and working yeah. out what you know learn from the mis- mistakes you know there's a classic uh, phrase about there's only winning and learning right oh, yeah, and i yeah. do believe in that so learn from where you've gone wrong in the past but let's concentrate on the stuff that we can influence and how we can actually make things better yeah sir alex ferguson always used uh this story a sort of analogy and he, he actually gave it to the the European Ryder Cup winning team when you had the massive comeback and he talked about when you see geese flying in formation and you have the one that's at the front and then it's like a sort of V type shape and how it, there'll be different periods where the law kind of take the brunt of the headwind and you probably being like an absolute scared wee guy <laughs> bet you're ready to burst into tears when you would have been but as you're waiting <laughs> somebody comes back to get you and there are times when you'll be in the position of power or fortitude or able to sort of express a more or, or, or convey a more powerful outlook leadership outlook and it's like at times we all have to pull each other up and it's probably a bit of a humbling reminder and to be like hey, there can be times when you're cast adrift and you rely on other people I think we we all need that sort of support mechanism at different times. Mm. I've seen it, like as I said, Kilimanjaro. T- I, I watched my pal's heels for three days, <laughs> right? And I would go for I would go for dinner at night, and I'd be like, Stephen, can you give me some more food? He literally was my babysitter, so oh, I, yeah. he gave me that support. I would never ever have got to the top without him and the kids, <laughs> right? And I seen that on the trek because, you, as I said, at the end of the first day, you saw people from. There was two people at the front were super fit, smashed, absolutely smashed at the three days, 
all the way from people that absolutely coped fine to people that struggled from about an hour in, right? Mm. So you actually saw that whole gamut. And But what you saw was the group pulling together, providing not only physical support, so like taking people's pulks and supporting them that way, just doing stuff for them. Like I nearly, I nearly cried on the third morning trying to get my gaiters on. Right, I'm not used to putting gaiters on. Gaiters, gaiters are the bit you put round the bottom of your boot to right. keep the ray the water from getting in. Oh, right, okay. But they're actually quite tricky to put on. And if you're exhausted Aye. and it's cold and they're <laughs> frozen, it'd be quite hard. So even just daft things like that, drying stuff off, helping, supporting each other, you definitely seen the power of a team. Aye. The power of supporting each other and the, not just the support people get, how that enables people to overcome and put that way, like power through and supporting. And there definitely are, are lots of, and I use team sports as a big analogy for leadership and team and work and the work. Mm. You see that plenty of people's strengths collectively being greater than the sum of the parts. I know it's a total well, see, cliche, but it is cliche, but often cliches are, are they're very much they're very much true and they've got their merits. And even just this whole sort of concept directly correlates I think whether it's life sport or a charity as well it's like if we all kind of chip in and everybody even if something seems insurmountable everybody can get there on their own but you'll get there a lot quicker if you're kind of you're, you're going as a, a unit and helping each other out and I, I think that's I, love what, it. I think you you definitely see that you see that in all walks of life and I think that's why I'm passionate about supporting the causes I support I'm passionate about like Scottish friendly is a mutual. That's mm -hmm. the sort. That is definitely the type of organisation that is there trying to help and support others. It's not, you know, we're not trying to benefit a few individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's it, like through whether it be in my private life, the kids' football, the stuff I do for charity and all that. Just actually being able to contribute more than just uh, you know, my own and benefit just myself and having a wee bit. It's a good feeling, isn't it, when you can do stuff for, for other people? Oh, well, it's, it's amazing. Aye. I, I mean, judging by everything you've done so far, nobody's guaranteed getting into heaven, but I think you're probably a wee step, a step or two ahead, of, a step or two ahead of me anyway, until I claim Kilimanjaro, I'll catch up with you. <laughs> um, last day, you're done in, shattered, you've got 15 kilometres to do. How, did you feel sort of a wee bit of resurgence of energy because you're like I'm almost there I can be back and by the way I was going to say the McDonald's you went to the most northerly McDonald's in the world <laughs> that's the thing that I was most I was like no way that's so cool and got a milkshake <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was class mate you thinking we're almost there we're almost done or are you kind of like right now nah, I need a back you on that guy's Bob uh, snowmobile so the second night I think when we went to our beds, it was nearly minus 20. There's then a, a quite a bad storm comes in, right? So we're lying in these wee fin tents and temperatures are plummeting and all you can hear is this storm raging. Oh. So you wake up and you're and the, the, the guys are saying to us, right, it's cold, you need to get your kit on super fast and we get moving, right? So you're already, they've set, you're in, you're not even in your tent yet. And you're already thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? How cold is it? So we get all our gear on, we've layered up, etc., and we're ready to go. What they, t they told us on the Thursday morning, so in the safety briefing, they'd actually described 
what the third morning was going to be like, right? So it actually said uphill level, uphill again, level, uphill again, right? On the the night before that, they said, hey, it's pretty easy. We're pretty much downhill from here because we've been climbing for so long. So it's pretty much downhill. So some of us did not remember what they'd said in the safety briefing. So that was that was a bit of a sickener for some people just because it was back into that climbing up the hill through mm. the forest. First, so the first few hours in the third morning were really tough because for you know because it wasn't what some people had expected. Plus, you're exhausted after two days, so that was pretty hard going. We stopped for lunch on the third day, and then at that point we did. You know, there's still some ups after that, but at that point, I actually did begin to gradually go downhill, so mm. it got a lot easier. And then the closer you got to the finishing line, obviously, obviously the stronger you got, right? As you could actually, you knew, you knew it wasn't so far to go. But like I said, the Finnish folk, they definitely don't work in the same metric systems. <laughs> in the last hour or so, one kilometer became, so one kilometer was how far to go, became one mile. Right. After 10 minutes, became two kilometers after half an hour before it started to go down. So, I must be finished at heart, by the way, because you talk about <laughs> measurements. Because my pals are like, Where are you? I'm like, Five minutes away. I'm not even left to her shit. <laughs> um, the when you kind of get to the end, is it like an actual finish line? So, there was a fin- have you not seen the pictures? Come on. Well, I mean, I've got this picture. There, there is a fi- there, oh, no, no, there is actually a. Finish line with two ends. Two ends. Oh no, I did see it. And I was like, oh, there you uh, go, we pun. So we we've actually finished at the Snow Hotel, the Ice Hotel. Right. So if you've seen the James Bond movie where he's out on the he's in the snow hotel and then out in the lake in oh, the right, car. No. Uh, anyway, that's was where we Pierce, finished. Was it a Pierce Brosnan one? No, that was Daniel Craig. Was it Daniel Anyway, that, that's where we actually finished. And then we went in there. A snow hotel. We went into the snow hotel. We were meant to be staying in the snow hotel. That was the original plan. What, is it like a novelty, like an ice bar type thing? Or is it just called that? Like, no, you it's a whole hotel made out of snow, ice and snow. No, nah, I'd be like, listen, I've seen enough. <laughs> so I, I suggest, so the, the trek, when they'd done it before, originally it was planned to stay the night in the snow hotel. And I said... Do you know what? I think after two nights outside, we'd rather just be in a nice bed. Aye, it's pure Stockholm syndrome. Get me into somewhere warm. So in there, we had a drink, and uh, the thing is, <coughs> excuse me, they sell you the drinks in a wee ice cube. <laughs> right. Okay. So you drink your drink in the ice cube, and then you smash it against the wall. So <laughs> aye, it was quite cool. We get into all the rooms and all that sort of stuff just to see it, and then aye. we get bus back to a proper hotel. Heading up the road, and then how how long until you then got back to fly back to Glasgow? So that was, we were back in the hotel about five o'clock with a celebratory dinner that night and then we started the journey back the next day. Mm. We, we, was there any sort of like trauma response in terms like physically or mentally in, in the days after it? Because in the time you're probably heightened adrenaline and just trying to get through it. Did you have any point of being like, Jesus, just like in reflection or did you just kind of slot back into life? I, I didn't, I think the fact that we were still there that night, I think helped. 
because then you, you did you effectively all wound down ah, together. Like decompression type thing. And then it took us most of the next day to travel home. So we, you know, we were still in the hotel. We went to the airport. We were waiting about in the airport. We flew to Helsinki. We were waiting in Helsinki. Flew to Edinburgh, and then we had to jump in cars. So Aye. you had most of the a day and a half, nearly of you know, Aye. to actually before you got home. Just shattered as well. And see, uh, see when you were around the camps. Like, what was the part? Or was anybody having a laugh? Or was it just subdued? Because I can imagine being done in and somebody starting to sing Grace and I'm like, mate, not enough. Like, <laughs> honestly, like, I'm not in the mood. <laughs> you, you definitely had a mixture, to be honest with you. So, uh, especially the second night with that exhausting climb, Aye. some people just went, well, straight to bed, just a bite to eat, straight to bed. Other people were still drinking whiskey at like uh, half twelve and one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> God's sake! You can take the boozer out of Glasgow. <laughs> um, the, so, how how much money was raised? I've got here about seventy seven grand. Is it more? So it's a, I I think net of all the fees that people had to pay for raising the money, I think it's just under seventy thousand pounds. Right. So yeah, pretty so, impressive. Uh, it's a lot of money. It'll go, it'll go to good use. Um, have Celtic have they rewarded you in any way? <laughs> have they offered you anything? Because they're usually quite good with that, and they were like bringing in for a dinner. Or... So we're going to have a re- effectively a reunion dinner. The foundation has invited us uh, along to the. Uh, their annual dinner, they invited a few of us along to that and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah. Smashing. Uh, pretty good time. Have you, have you got any other, have you committed to any other things coming up? Have you have you said just leave out for a while? So, so I do want, I hope my wife isn't listening here, so I do want to do something else after this. Uh, she has asked that I don't. <laughs> where, would, where, where have you got in mind? So previously I'd thought about Everest Base Camp, but... <sighs> But apparently that's not because so many people do that, and because there's no way to get the rubbish off the trail, is actually Aye. not that nice. Uh, as well as the, all the same physical demand and stuff, it's actually not that nice a, a, a trek. Aye. So some maybe the Great Wall of China or me, Maku Maku Picchu. Yeah, that would be amazing. If you went somewhere warm, then I want to get I want involved. <laughs> if, it was, if it's roasted, I'd go. But if it's freezing, I'm like, nah. Well, well, they are doing a cycle to Seville. Actually, but I think you're probably no get much time to sign up for that. Ah, too late. Well, if anybody wants to rope me into any charity things, treks or expeditions where it's warm, that is the caveat. <laughs> I'm making. I don't do cold. If there's heat or there's sun, then I'm in. Um, and company-wise, have you got anything that you're sort of planning, or is it just you're sort of continuous fundraising and, and going to the places that you've you've already committed? So one of the things I like to do is just get our all the people that work at Scottish Friendly more involved with our charity partners. Mm-hmm. And I said earlier, we've you know we've aligned with three partners. So one of them's Action for Children Scotland. We talked about other one is somebody that we've been involved with for decades now, Scottish Book Trust, right? Uh, and supporting just children's literacy. With that being a huge driver to financial outcomes, we talked about earlier about be, putting people in better boats. Yeah. The single biggest thing you can do to improve somebody's boat, so to speak, is actually literacy and actually giving them that. So we've supported that, I think it's 17 years or, or so we've supported that charity for. So that's something we're really committed to. And the third one is developing the young workforce, which is bringing people into jobs, getting good outcomes for kids as they leave school. So we want the, we want everybody that's quite friendly to understand more about what we're doing, but also to actually 
for them to get involved and to contribute. And we think there's lots of opportunities. Mm. I have signed myself up for, we're doing the three peaks challenge. All right, aye. Uh, I've signed myself up, but but not quite because I'm logistics support. So I'm the driver of the minibus. Uh, that's a much better job. And I, I used to work for a couple of years ago and they did that. They did that. Is it Snowden? Well, what, what are the three people? So you the three start peaks? off uh, Ben Nevis. Uh-huh. Uh, then you do Scaffold Pike. And then you do Snowden, you right. finish at Snowden, you need to do it in 24 hours. Uh, and when I was at Aegon, they did it as well, and I know they managed to do it, but it's not it's not easy. Right? No. It's, it's, it's just, Even the distance of those three places. Well, they reckon there's about 11 hours driving in your 24 hours, so you're basically climbing three mountains up and down, three the, the three biggest mountains, one in each country, in less than 13 hours. Nah. Lunacy. Yeah, I would. I would. I mean, amazing to anybody that can do it. But you, you hear that, you're like, "There's no way. That's not." I know people do it, so fair play, man. For I remember for those nutters we were talking about. They were supporting us on the trek. Ah, uh, I think the leader of it. He there was an official competition. I'm sure his team's the world record holder. Bloody hell! Uh, so he, he's like, Stephen, just batter up and down Ben Nevis. You can I, do that in about two and a half hours. I that's what I'll do, mate. I'll just fly up <laughs> Scotland's biggest mountain. Was it? Is, is is Ben Nevis the biggest in the UK or biggest yeah, in Scotland? Biggest in the UK. Aye, aye, aye. No problem, mate. I'll fly. Up. Want me to do it twice? <laughs> Sick. Uh, no, this has been great, man. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Aye, tell me about it for people to donate. Um, the link podcast cliche. I'll have a. a donation link in the podcast notes but if they also want to find it where else, where can they get it where do you direct them to they can just contact the Celtic FC Foundation directly mm-hmm. the actual link to the fundraising is now closed so it's actually just contacting right, the okay. foundation directly if you look up the website we can Aye. give you the details because there will there'll be people that will want to back that up and there'll be people that will feel aligned to the, the values of the Celtic Foundation as well so it's good to give them the the direction where they can go. Well, I suppose I'll finish off by saying you've inspired me. <laughs> uh, we're hearing your charity stuff, and you have definitely confirmed that I'm never going into the Arctic Circle <laughs> after hearing you talking about it. <laughs> I'll dare it, Nels, but I'm not doing that. Thanks very much, Sean. Ah, cheers, mate. And thank you for listening, and we'll be back same time next week with another episode of Blethered. Cheers. Leathered was written and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders. You could start a fight in an empty house. Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.